Hello, and welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This episode was originally recorded in January of 2020. Trigger warning, this episode is on suicide. If you happen to have small ears in the room, you might wish to listen to this at a different time. In part one, we'll talk with Paul Miskew and listen to his story. In part two, we'll do our normal Q&A, and Paul will update us on current statistics and their interaction with COVID-19. If at any time during this episode you yourself feel suicidal, please call 1-800-273-8255 or text HOME to 741-741. We know this is a very serious topic, but we felt it was important to share Paul's story. I hope that this discussion is meaningful and helps you understand the issue of suicide more clearly. Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Tonight, Janelle and I are with Paul Miskew, and Billy is with us tonight. Good to have you, Billy. We are talking tonight about a very serious, important topic, and um, I would say if, if you're with your kids right now, I would say maybe rethink this if you're in the car or if they're a certain age. And so tonight's episode, yeah, it's yeah. R-rated for different reasons. Trigger warning. Yes, there you go. We will be talking about suicide. Yep. And, but before we get into the t- topic tonight, uh, we're going to do a little introduction because that's what we like to do, right? Uh, also, go to brewtheology.org to find out all the information. If you want to start a chapter, if you want to partner, we're at brewtheology on Instagram and Facebook, brew underscore on Twitter, and we're ready to rock and roll. So, Paul. You're the you're the man of the hour, and we're here just to have a conversation based on your life and your work and uh, the seriousness of this in our country specifically, and here locally in Colorado in the, in the city of Denver. So, um, man, you uh, you've got a long story, but and I, I don't I, do. mind, I don't mind you telling the whole thing, um, but I think that people need to hear it, and I think that um, you know whatever you feel most comfortable talking about you can and if you don't mind us asking you serious questions after that then absolutely we, and I always edit stuff out so. but <laughs> yeah so um Paul you're uh, you're the founder of an organization nonprofit and I last week I apologize I said um I said move on move but I was on. thinking that's another organization this is hold on yes sir yeah so hold on and um so tell us before we get into hold on and what in your work there just your your religious background your pedigree, your spirituality, and just sort of that trajectory of moving towards where you are now at this stage in life. Sure. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I am a native of Denver, Colorado, and um, 48 years old. I claim eight children, four of them birth, and four, two adopted and two foster. They range from 11 to 30. Already, you have all kinds of like crazy credibility above. Like, people yeah. are really listening. I'm going, man, this guy. He's- and uh, I, I was, I would say, I was born in the Catholic Church. I was probably born on a Saturday and in church on Sunday. Um, I went to parochial Catholic school, St. Mary's of Littleton. If there's any fans out there, uh, went to Mullen for a year when it was still all boys, which is its own form of purgatory. I was an altar boy and I think a, a fairly devout uh, Catholic. Um, I think at even one point I considered becoming a priest. Uh, maybe in part just to get away from my parents. But um, 
it was certainly a consideration. And uh, I'll get into the story a little bit later of, of how my mind got messed up, not necessarily by the Catholic Church, but just some other things. Um, went off to college and uh, I started as an accounting major. And after a first week of classes, I said, this sucks and decided to drop all my classes and take some things that sounded just fun. And I ended up with a couple of counseling classes, some psychology classes, a philosophy class. And by the end of it, I ended up with a degree in theology and psychology and went on and got my master's degree from CU in um, social science. And then I got a second uh, graduate degree from the University of Denver in alternative dispute mediation, in which I did um, some professional volunteer mediation work for Jefferson County. Um, my friends make fun of me. They say I was born in the wrong decade and that I should have been born during the Renaissance because I like to do a little bit of everything, include brewing my own beer and distilling my own whiskey, um, in between having children, I guess. And maybe that's why I brew is because I have I so many say. children. And so, uh, I would describe myself as a, uh, a churchless person person. Um, I think there's a lot about organized, um, Protestant religion that, that, that I reject, um, related to their practice. And I don't think they're following the basic tenets of what Christ originally taught. Um, I do believe in the teachings of Christ, um, what he stood for. And, uh, I think the world can just use more love. And if I can be more like that every day, then I think that's a good thing. That's kind of the philosophical bent that I come from. As far as going back to, uh, kind of who I am and, and how I got to this place, uh, one Sunday morning on the way to church, my parents decided to turn right instead of left. And we ended up in the church of a charismatic Pentecostal speaking in tongues church. So I went from being Catholic one day to charismatic the next. With and that's probably how you're able to handle eight kids. Is <laughs> you, you went from one extreme to the other. Exactly. Um, you know, so this is in uh, 1985. So a while ago, if you were around during that time, you'll know that there was a lot of scandals going on with the the bakers and a bunch of other folks that that uh, got caught doing things they shouldn't have and I was at a church just like that and I think it was apparent to me um, that it wasn't authentic and going from a very if you're familiar with the Catholic Church very liturgical um, very consistent 59 minutes you knew when to stand sit kneel and what to say every week it was always the same and there's a, an appealing comfort in that and I think some faith circles. To go into flag-waving, dancing in the aisles, to kind of just being overwhelmed, what that really did for me is just made me question the whole shebang about this is all kind of bullshit. And I think deep down inside I wanted to believe it, but outwardly I didn't know how I could. That just, I think, left me with a lot of 
questions about just life in general, about why why am I here? What is the meaning of of this life if if this is just all a facade and it's just about getting this pastor a nice Cadillac? Um, I think that was part of the root um, of of my own kind of despair. You know, when we talk about suicide, we often are talking about after the fact and the tragedy's already happened. And part of my identity was wrapped up in this, this church exchange. And because I didn't know how to handle that, you know, my parents loved me. I knew that they were committed to each other. They loved each other. Um, I didn't know where I fit in. And so I started turning to other things. Mostly, you know, typical teenage things, drinking and, and hanging out with friends, sneaking out at night, taking the car without your parents knowing, all the things that sound nice and fun. And I think they I was, always knew. They always knew. And uh, I only got caught once. And that's probably a bad thing too. But, you know, um, we won't go into that. <laughs> my, my mom used to say that she prayed that we would get caught and then we would. And she said, see? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my mom had that voice too. She said, God told me. I'm like, ah, well, okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the I guess the life I was living at the age of 15 now um, wasn't, wasn't honest. I wasn't honest with myself. I wasn't honest with my friends. I wasn't being honest with my parents. And I let my own despair overwhelm me. And it it wasn't intentional. It was, it, I think it would start as just a, a, a thought of, you're not good enough. You're not going to amount. You're not going to succeed at this. You're a failure. Call them self-doubts. And they became more frequent and they would last longer. I didn't really know what to call them. I couldn't articulate all these different influences that were leading into that, right? And so as a young person, when you're listening to Casey Kasem, Top 40, and you're listening to all these songs that are projecting this image of perfection and what love is, and I didn't have that. And so I felt somehow weak, broken, inferior. And eventually one night I... I was standing in front of my bedroom mirror and I didn't feel anything. And I'm like, what is the fucking point of this life if this is all there is? And if this is all there is and God and religion and all of this isn't real, then what does it matter if I check out now? And I stared at myself thinking these thoughts and I just kept staring at myself and they just continued. And I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm not going to live like this. And um, I reached into my dresser drawer and passed the socks, pulled out from the back of the drawer a 38 revolver that I had purchased from a friend a few weeks before for 50 bucks and emptied the rest of the sock into my hand with six hollow point bullets and I knew I only needed one. 
I didn't want to cry for help. I wanted to die. I know that I did. And I wanted it. I didn't want to be in pain. I didn't want to be crippled or paralyzed or anything else. And to the point that I put the gun to my temple and I said, no, I don't want to mess up my beautiful face and my perfect smile. So out of vanity, I placed the gun under my chin, thinking soft tissue, a straight shot straight up to the brain to blow out the top of my head and life lights out. And as I had the gun pointed to my head and I really literally felt nothing. And I think that was just as overwhelming as everything else. Because I really thought that if I had placed a gun to my head, that I would feel like I'm going to die. And that's not a good thing. And yet I felt nothing. I began crying and standing there and thinking, all right, this is it. And I said, God, if you're real, I'm sorry. And I pulled the trigger. The next thing I remember is a, a sound, a flash of light, and then being thrown back against the wall. It was a Monday night. My dad was watching football upstairs. And he came downstairs. And he said, what happened? I said, I got shot. Who shot you? I shot myself. And he fell into his arms and carried me upstairs. I'm laying in his lap, bleeding out of my neck and my throat and my mouth. And I just remember my dad just crying out, God, don't let my son die. My mom, whose bedroom was above me, was sleeping. And she was not woken by the gunshot. I'm not sure how she slept through that, but she did. My sister woke her up. She called 911. And the first time she called, they hung up on her because she was calm. Um, she called back, I think a little bit more upset. Um... The police came first with their guns drawn and followed by the paramedics. And what I do know is that from the time I was loaded in the ambulance until I got to the hospital, the bleeding that I was having stopped. What I also knew is that the bullet severed my carotid artery. It shattered the RC1, the first vertebrae, cracked the second and third. It shot bone into my, into my brain. Um, I was thinking spinal fluid out of my ear. My voice was still fine. I was still yelling and screaming. Um, and I knew that I didn't make it, that I didn't succeed. And at that point, I was clinging on to life. Um, the doctor that was on call that night was a breast surgeon. I don't need a breast surgeon. <laughs> he had not performed a tracheotomy since med school, and he did it a little too high, and he pierced my vocal cords. From that night on, um, for the first, I guess that next 24 hours, um, I had 17 units of blood, which is basically a blood transfusion and a half. And um, the doctors were skeptical that I was even going to live through the night. I did. And I don't account it to my faith because I had none. But what I know is that my parents were on the other side of the door with their friends and they're praying and asking for a miracle. I feel like I'm a very 
logical and structured person in, in pretty much all walks of life. And I still can't explain physically how and why I'm here standing here today. Other than if you believe in miracles, I believe what happened that night. And I have asked myself many times over the last 30 years, why? And I think it comes back to shedding light in this world of darkness, that there's hope for those who've lost their way about faith, about life, who feeling that they're at the end of their life's rope figuratively and that life is worth living. I know that if I would have died that night, that that would have been it, lights out. And yet for the past 30 years, I've had the joy of being married for almost 29, of having too many children, of working with tons of youth and, 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 and adults who have felt suicidal and depressed, find hope to hold on, to get past that moment and page of darkness. And part of what makes me sad is that sometimes it's that religious experience or church doctrine that's fed that silence and contributed to those who are feeling death knocking at their door or feeling like they don't have hope or why should they continue on living or finding it difficult to talk about with their clergy or with their pastors or with their, or where they attend faith. And I don't think it should be that way. You know, the Bible talks about that the church is, is love and that we should love each other. And if that was really true, you know, why for so long did churches make it such that you couldn't even be buried in the same cemetery if you had committed suicide? Um, I think that's that's opposite of what is love. And I don't think suicide is the only example of church dogma getting in the way of of real love of of offering hope to people yes so about about that specifically it's it's uh well i say funny it's not funny it's sad but what you had said about uh you know catholics specifically but also conservative protestants as well correct and um and so like this is like this major abomination okay right which i mean and, and nobody Nobody wants suicide. I mean, so it's it's not it's not a good thing. But they doubled down on this, right? And you were saying it's that was Thomas Aquinas. I th- is that were you saying that the other night? Was he was he was the one that took this? Thou shalt not murder, and then said, "Let's go further into this and what this means if you murder yourself." Yeah. Because I had a buddy just the other day. He's like, oh, "I heard you guys were talking about suicide." And then he, he then says, didn't, doesn't the Bible say, and he starts like kind of making some shit up. And I said, actually, I think it's Thomas Aquinas from what I understand. But can you, yeah. Can you help us understand like how that became that much more just severe and intense and how it's like the scarlet letter in it in yet another. Sure. You know? So, um, both in the old and new Testament, there's stories of, of those who have taken their own life, right. From Saul falling on a sword to um, Judas who hung himself. So that the, the Bible isn't silent on those who've done it. The Bible actually doesn't specifically condemn suicide. What had happened in the 5th century AD is that theologians took part of thou shalt not murder to also thou shalt not murder thyself. 
and then brought in some of Plato's work on the book called On the Soul, which is a book about immortality and kind of combined those. And by the 14th century, um, Christianity, Catholicism had risen to the point within um, secular government that they were being heavily influenced. And so there were written laws uh, that it became illegal to commit suicide. The church also took on those same... So illegal meaning like if you didn't succeed, then they're yes, going to throw you, you in prison? Be, you could be prosecuted um, for uh, attempted murder. So, in fact, you know, what I did in 1987 was attempted murder. We just have gotten kind enough, even in Littleton, Colorado, to say, yeah, we're not going to prosecute this guy. But in times gone past, yes, you absolutely, you could have lost your entire um, estate, belongings, possessions. So not only would you not be buried, and if you didn't make it, then it's just another kick down the road for you. And this may be just speculation and I'm, and I'm just wondering off the top of my head now. So because this has become, become so intensified in Western culture and, and regardless if, if we live in a society that's mostly agnostic now, but yet it still has that very top down, uh, you know, God puritanical. I mean, th this, this is a Christian nation, even though it's not, you know what I mean? And because of, of the influence of Augustine and Aquinas and all these people right. before who've doubled down on suicide then is there then that since there's that shame within somebody who's who's contemplating, there's that fear of then going out and then talking to my friend Janelle, my friend Billy. Right. You know, is that in in that way? Is, I'm just kind of curious if there's a correlation there because it's become so heavy in the Christian culture. So when when something is forbidden and 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 it's not anymore within the Catholic Church, but it was an unforgivable sin. And in 1992, when uh, John Paul II rewrote part of the catechism, that changed. But from, I don't know, 5th century up until 1990s, right? It was a forbidden sin. That had a huge, heavy influence on practicing Catholics. If they were feeling suicidal or committed suicide, Oh, no, he, it was just an accident, right? Because if you didn't have a, a mass to bury you, then that's, there is eternal consequences to that. And so it drove the silence. In Protestant churches, it was, it was much the same. I would say, you know, in American Christianity, which all lump Catholicism in there just for the sake of, of making it simple, the same, I think level of resistance to talking about suicide was equal. Now, certainly there are some very loving and caring Protestant and Catholic churches and people out there that, that didn't and don't feel that way. But doctrinally, they very much did. And I had seen over the past 20 years going into many places and in, in mostly Protestant that the pastors didn't want you talking about it. One, they feared that it would be contagious, which is, is a myth. And two, that there was some form of spiritual weakness on the part of the person who committed it. And that's just simply not true. In fact, research shows that by openly talking about it and, and, and 
having to be able to be out on the table is going to help the suicidal and not promote them to doing it. Asking if somebody is thinking about suicide is not going to make them do it. Trust me, they've already thought about it if, they're, if they have. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I, when I think about our, our culture that we were raised in as well, uh, sex before marriage, such a big thing and all the other things that go along with that in the sex culture. And yet, who is probably having the most sex? You know, people in those kind of cultures. <clears throat> but it was a, you didn't talk about it. You just don't do it. We're not going to go down the rabbit trail of, of sex tonight. Uh, but so uh, as somebody who was a youth minister for, gosh, over over a decade of, of my ministry ha- was working with teens and then now having two young daughters. And I look at these stats that you've given us and I hear your story as a young person. Um, one, it's like it's incredibly alarming. And then obviously, it, you know, it breaks my heart. Um, cause you never, you never think it's going to happen to you and you know, the, the, whether it's the teenagers that you're working with or, you know, your own family for that right. matter. That's, <laughs> I'm seeing these stats and it says that mostly girls, 25% of them have had the idea. Okay. Whereas a smaller percentage of, of young boys do, but then later it seems that then those who go through with it, you say 79% are male. Uh, while women are prone to just having having the thoughts, which either way, it's still it still is disturbing. But y- starting at a young age, I mean, and you work with young people. You've had eight kids. We've all dealt with youth ministry. Mm-hmm. Billy, you've had uh, two boys that you've raised. So I don't know where to begin. As somebody who is really just, I'm going to be honest, and I've told Janelle this, I'm really naive about this. Yeah. My wife had a boyfriend before me. It's like five five years before we met, I think, and he committed suicide. So I just never understood that. And, you know, his anniversary of like 20 something year happened just recently. And I, I looked at her the other night and I said, do you still think about that? She's like, well, of course I think about that. Well, I'm like, oh, how come you never talk about it? I don't. And maybe because like, honestly, early in our years of dating and marriage, I just didn't get it. So how do you get people who don't understand it like me. Let's just let's just talk to the d- dumbest guy in the room about suicide and suicide prevention. Then to then understand young people, because that's that's where my heart's at. I, I, none of us want anybody to take their life. Yeah. Um, so obviously, it's going to start with a, with a little bit of just eye opening stats that you've given us here. But then there's there's more to it than that. Sure, uh, I think one point to think about that's it's super important is that, and this was true of me when I was when I pulled the trigger. I wasn't thinking about my mom, my sister, my brother, my dad, my grandparents, and on and on and on. Suicide intimately impacts at least six people every single time. And if you think about that, those that are feeling hopeless, there are, on average, at least six people that really do care and want you not to. Suicide is also something that because there's this darkness about it that people like become uncomfortable and, and I don't know what to say. And sometimes it's, it's just listening and being willing to listen. I would certainly advocate for anybody to uh, do some type of suicide training. Um, they're out there throughout the community. Um, Colorado has a pretty big Colorado chapter for the net from the national um Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They do great work. Colorado in 2000, I think, 17 started um, actually a state office of suicide prevention that's doing some pretty good things and bringing resources out there. So I think that's step one is we need to be more 
and when I say we, I think every adult, especially mm-hmm. every adult who's working with any type of teen and every adult who is in contact with somebody who's under the age of 10, because really good relations start, start with children. And it's keeping those lines of communication open with those young people so that they know and feel like they have somebody to talk to as they get older. And I think this is the role of, of community and especially of, of, of churches to get involved in the community and all of the things that are happening around suicide awareness, whether it's going on a, on a walk or whether it's um, giving money to one of the, the big foundations or whether it's getting training and volunteering with the, one of the hotlines. There's, I think, a place for everybody to, to step in because suicide is a preventable disease. It's a preventable. And if we're not stepping up, then guess what? Young people especially are going to continue to commit suicide. And I would also say that suicide people think often that, oh, they they must have a mental health issue. And while 50% experienced a form of clinical depression prior to them committing suicide, there's a huge group of young people who had no mental health issues, meaning that they came from a divorced family, a happy family, otherwise seemingly well-adjusted. And what are the stories that we hear in the news? Oh, I never knew. Oh, he was a star football player. Oh, she was a cheerleader. I don't understand how, why she did it. And yet four out of five teenagers give the classic symptoms of, of suicidal behavior before they make an attempt. And the culture as a whole, including the church, by being afraid to talk about the elephant in the room, just drives the silence. And we have to break the silence and be willing and able to talk about it. Do you, yeah. do you mind specifically talking about those those areas that you that you would be able to see that the rest of us might not be able to see from the outside. So if it's a young person, whether it's 10 or 16 and you're like, Oh, there's, there's some characteristics, there's some traits happening now that are, that are unique to this. Uh, uh, I don't want to say normal behavior, but you know what I mean? Like that's out of something that's out of the ordinary versus how they should be operating. Right. What, what are those things that people should look for? You know, so I would say, you know, um, anytime there's a, a change in an adolescent's behavior that's marked, right? So they become more isolated. They start eating more. They start eating less. They have rapid weight loss. They have ra- rapid weight gain. Um, they are normal one day and then they become irritated and they, they stay irritated. And I'm not talking about the normal teenage brain who is... I was going to say, <laughs> you know, I, I had a sister who was 60 months older than me. Just never knew, who you, never knew who you were going to get. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sybil, you know, talking about death, giving things away, making statements like my life doesn't matter. Who cares? Grades dropping off. It's, it seems subtle until you just start listening with your eyes meaning that you're not just looking and saying at first glance, oh, they're just, they're just being 14 and out of control. 
as a parent, as a friend, as a mentor, as a teacher, is there something else going on with them? And when we think there is, hey, Ryan, is everything going okay? You seem like something's, something's going on, right? And just asking that question. And you would be surprised at how many teachers will volunteer that information or at least give a hint in one of those areas and saying something like, are you feeling suicidal? Are you thinking about taking your own life? You would be surprised at how many teenagers I've talked to over the past 25, 30 years who just start crying and say yes. It's then, oh my God, now what do I do, right? I have this person falling apart in crisis and there are places that we can point to Mm -hmm. to help them out when we're not the expert. And that's also super, super important to realize is that we don't have to be the ones that provide all the answers. We're providing, hold on, hence the name of the nonprofit. Let's talk about this. Let's get help. Let's find someone that can help get you through this if you're not equipped and trained. Because there are a lot of things that are beyond, I think, most people. And Colorado, Denver is, in particular, is filled with a ton of really passionate counselors and mental health professionals that want to also make a difference. We have to know how to access those. Um, I can supply a list for Janelle for the webpage too that has a a list of all the places in the Denver metro area of mental health resources. Um, Yes, our state is poorly funded when it comes to mental health care. And so it's, I think it's up to us as different flavors of community groups to make a difference. One national organization that I've had their training is uh, Mental Health First Aid. And Mental Health First Aid offers free trainings or low-cost trainings all around the country. And um, when you look at what they're asking you to do, some of their trainings are as short as three hours. Some are a day, but they go through exactly how you can talk to someone when you see something that's out of the ordinary and what questions to ask and then how to give them resources. And it was such an invaluable um, resource for me that I got because I was working at an agency that worked with kids. And so it was just part of our normal training. But they will do trainings at churches. They'll do them at businesses. And they're always looking for new trainers. So it's really uh, everything I've seen of it. It's a great organization because they have all the materials You can become a trainer, you can take the training, um, and you can help be on the front lines of pointing people in the right direction. And one that I attended was Sources of Strength, which does trainings through churches, but they also focus on schools. And the training is for adults who work with teenagers and kids, but it is also helping to empower the teenagers to look out for their friends so that they know we can go ask for help. We don't have to do this by ourselves, and here's how we ask for help. So Sources of Strength was a good Sources of Strength is a, is a great program that mm-hmm. teaches young people to be resilient and to, to share their story. So going back to the statistics, Ryan, um, it's estimated that for every one person that commits suicide, there's around 20, 25 attempts. So there's 25 people who lived and survived. And... Yeah. Even though I can't hide it because of my voice, um, for a long time, you know, probably the first 10 years or so, I didn't really bring it up. Oh, you have a cold? Yeah. And just, I, that, that was it. That's all you got. 
And now when they say, it's like, well, if you really want to know, <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll be more honest with it. And that was kind of my own coming to grips with the shame that I had inside, that I was this weak person, mentally ill or something, and gave in and tried to kill themselves. I didn't want people to think that I was fragile or broken. And so I didn't talk about it, even though I really couldn't hide it. And yeah, I still try to. And I think about those other 24 other people who had a more benign attempt, but attempt nonetheless. And further, all of those people who thought about it and they didn't attempt, those are the stories that we as a culture have to tell and we have to start sharing with each other because one of the things that especially young people think is I'm all alone and nobody understands how I feel. When the reality is we probably have all felt that way at some point. Some to more extreme measures than other, like me shooting myself with a gun, to I thought about it. I thought about driving my car into this uh, wall, but I didn't, right? That's a story to tell because they held on. They were resilient. They pressed on. And whatever was happening at that time of their life either resolved itself because it was silly, foolish, and petty, or it was something more severe that, that actually needed attention, uh, a disease, a parent dies, a loved one dies. Um, all of the things that we think are the major heartbreaks in life that happen to everybody, right? Everybody experiences pain at some point in their life, a loss of a child. Um, and yet there are countless stories of those who said, I feel this way, but I'm not going to. And the more that we tell that story, I think that will have a dent in making a difference and giving something, an alternative to our young people who only hear in the media and in music and on, in movies that if life sucks, check out. And where churches, I think, have softened some and gotten better at talking about it, there's still that cultural influence of it being this forbidden thing and shameful and it still drives the silence even more so that all of us have to step up and step out of our comfort zone and be willing to help people know that there's something more and that there's something sacred about this one life, this one chance we have at life to have. Yeah. How small is that line between someone thinking and having a plan and making an attempt. And I'm sure it varies, but I just, I wonder, I think people probably have a misconception that like, oh, well, that's like a giant step. Well, but is it all the time? I, I don't think that it is. I think that, that, that having something as simple as saying, why am I here? Right? We question our own mortality. Um, from all the research and the things that I've, done and experienced, I think that it's a, a normal human experience to question your own mortality to the point of even saying, do I need to be here, right? What is the difference that my life is making in this earth? And that's compounded or made worse when we experience life's pain 
And uh, two, there's two thoughts on that. One, it's even more heartbreaking when some of that pain is caused by a church, right? Who's yeah. supposed to be about love. And so that that's what just really gets to my soul. Two is that if we're here in this life and we have this one life to live, shouldn't we count it for something that is precious and something that we need to say that it's it's more than just happen chance that we're here, regardless of what people believe theologically. What we know is that we're here now and we're living this life and this life can be joyful. Yes, there's pain. There can be sorrow, but that's not all that it is. I didn't realize if I would have checked out that day, how much I would have missed. And, you know, it kind of pisses me off that I bought into my own lie that, that my life wasn't worth anything. And, you know, when I wake up and see my wife and I'm, I'm thankful, I've been thankful for the past 30 years of just waking up saying, I have another day. And I know that's not a normal perspective, but I can't escape the fact that I shouldn't be here. And whatever is, is, whatever is out there, whatever you want to call it, there's something that's driving me so that Colorado is not on the top 10 list of the most suicides in the nation. To me, that's appalling and something that we can do and that we have to do to step up and make a difference. Thank you so much for listening to the Brew Theology Podcast. If you would like to know more, you can find us at brewtheology.org, on Facebook and Instagram at brewtheology, and on Twitter at brew underscore theology. If for any reason you are feeling suicidal yourself, please call one 800 273 8255 or text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. Thank you so much for listening and have a good day.